Nomai Haremai, Napataka Korero, Auckland Libraries in association with Ancestry and Ancestry Progenealogists present a special selection of talks honouring New Zealand's military history. Our next speaker, Charlotte MacDonald, is Professor of History, Victoria University of Wellington, Te Heringa Waka. Tēnā koutou katoa and um, uh, greetings to everybody. So what I've, I've got about 10 minutes to talk about um, the British troops who were in New Zealand, particularly in the 1860s. Um, so I'm, I'm going to talk about six things um, and then I've got a couple of examples um, at the end of that. It is only going to be fairly brief, so I would suggest if you're interested in this angle of things, have a look at our soldiersofempire.nz website, where you'll see um, much more detail about the work that we've been doing. And the principal person I've been working with on this project is Rebecca Lenehan. So if some of you might have an interest in Scottish settlement and Scottish immigration in the 19th century, um, Rebecca did an early piece of work on that and now she's been working with me on this um, soldiers project. So we began with the question, uh, which in some ways picks up a little bit where that last question that Vincent was talking about um, came from as well. Um, who were the people who did the fighting for the settler government uh, in the wars that Vincent just talked about? So often they're described as a war between Māori or the King movement and the government or the Crown or the British. Um, but in fact, it's the settler government that is a crucial part of uh, leading to those events. But in fact, until 1865, the vast majority of those who were actually picking up the guns and doing the fighting and in the campaigns were um, soldiers who were part of the British Imperial regiments, all infantry regiments, who were present in New Zealand. So what do we know about them? Not a great deal. So in some ways picking up exactly that question of, well, when we get to war, you have the worst possible um, collapse of a relationship between two groups of people. And if it's war, it's one in which governments or leaders have said we are having a conflict. So we talk in New Zealand about these as wars unlike in certain other parts of the world at the same time. Um, and I'm thinking, obviously, um, with the Australian contrast being very strongly in mind, where often these events are referred to as um, frontier violence. And that's not a term that we tend to use so much in New Zealand. So why is that? So our, our task was to really find out something about who these um, imperial soldiers were and recognising that there are also the Royal Navy and Blue Jackets or sailors involved, but we haven't had enough time to deal with them as well, but recognising they're also part of the picture. So the first thing I want to say about this group of people is something about the numbers and the scale in which they're present in New Zealand. So there are redcoats or British Imperial soldiers in New Zealand from 1840, there are a few that come with, with Hobson and Co, but from the 1840s through until February of 1870, as Vincent mentioned, the very last Imperial soldiers left New Zealand, the 18th Regiment men, uh, in 1870, when the British government, in fact, pulled all their soldiers back from self-governing colonies at the same time. So it wasn't a New Zealand-specific thing that, that brings the, the soldiers back. 
in those three decades, there are approximately, and it's still only an approximate number, about 20,000 Imperial soldiers serve some of their time in New Zealand and 18 different regiments, plus the men who serve with the Royal Engineers uh, and the Royal Artillery. So that in itself, I think, gives a sense of the scale of the military presence in New Zealand. So you know, New Zealand settlements, even in the 1840s, were pretty tiny, um, mostly if we're thinking about um, Pākehā or Pākehā Māori settlements, mostly coastal, um, mostly still around um, whaling, trading ports, and the New Zealand Company settlements, even in the 1840s, still pretty small. So the military presence is big, both in terms of numbers, in terms of continuity, and in terms of what else the military brings. And I guess the other thing I would say in terms of where the questions of our project have come from is to recognize the difference between the military presence there for fighting. And I'm far from being a military historian, so, but I'm interested in what a military does in a settler community and in a community like New Zealand made up in the 1840s to 70s of Māori and Pākehā beginning to live together in a variety of different ways and, and not doing it well at certain points, as well as places where it was something that was cooperative. And what the military brings and why they're here beyond the time of fighting is that they bring a commissariat, they bring money, they pay the soldiers, however small it is. They bring food, they bring rations, they bring the skills of the engineers and the artillery, they bring road building. George Graham, who's the Royal Engineer in Auckland, who builds the Auckland barracks and the walls that are still there, plants the trees there that Avril Bell's written uh, about. But we can think of many examples of that same thing. So there's, there's, there's money, there's people, there's skills, there's all that what we would now call infrastructure that lies behind that military presence. So numbers and scale, number one. Number two is, and I've already sort of indicated a little bit about this, is the way in which these soldiers are part of a wider, empire-wide, global story. So, you know, it was often said by the mid-19th century that you'd find a British redcoat, a British soldier, uh, they were like uh, across the globe. They were like cormorants, like shags. They were sitting on every outcrop. Anywhere you went in the globe, you would find one. Because the British Empire was immensely expansive in its interests, places where it had formal colonies and places where it had trading interests. So the soldiers and the Navy are part of that great mobility of people moving around the world all the time the most substantial number of soldiers at any one point being in India, but they're all around the rest of the world as well. And those of you who are uh, dialing in from Australia will know there are um, soldiers doing combat guard duty in um, New South Wales and Van Diemen's Land, but also um, in Victoria uh, and in outer New South Wales, um, being in some ways guards against bush rangers, etc. So, but there are examples all around the world. So. We've been talking a bit already today about the New Zealand wars obviously being a particular story um, in this part of the world, but it's one that's always linked to that bigger picture. 
And again, the questions about sources and where you would look to find the story of soldiers, some of whom end up at this most distant part of the, of the empire, if you like, is also in um, the, the National Archives in Kew in London, because it's there that the soldiers originate from and where the uh, main military records are all held in the War Office series. And again, many of those are available through Ancestry um, and through the digitised services of the, the National Archives. So the third thing I want to say is something about the, the culture or the character of the British Army in the 1860s and right through that, if you like, 1840s, 1870s period. And this is something about the huge division that there is between the mass of men who serve as ordinary private rank and file soldiers. So in a regiment of say 800, 750 would be those rank and file soldiers and the very tiny number of officers and NCOs uh, that would make up that last 50 or so. So you have to really set aside anything that you might think about in terms of a 20th century army, the citizen soldier, the World War I, World War II story, which is a totally, totally different one. So if you're following the webinars this week, um, talking about 20th century armies and soldiers is a totally different thing. The men who are serving in the Imperial regiments are there as professional soldiers. Um, they're there as occupation. It's what they do and are. They're not doing it because they become a carpenter and they're called to this particular war and they'll go back to an ordinary life. It is uh, their life together. And as Vincent indicated, it was absolutely, if you were a rank and file soldier in these regiments, life was pretty tough and it was pretty brutal. You got very basic rations, you got two sets of uniforms a year, um, you were under absolute rule of obedience, you swore that you would obey and if you didn't, uh, you could um, be subject to being um, shot uh, for um, desertion or being branded on your body with an iron saying that you're deserted and we've got um, examples of people exactly um, being subject to that kind of discipline, the flogging kind of punishment that Vincent mentioned as well. So it was, it was, it was tough, even for a rank and file soldier was generally um, thought not to be able to address the, an officer directly, they always had to go through an intermediary, so huge was the gulf between the ordinary soldier and an officer. And again, remembering that until 1870 and what's called the Cardwell reforms after the um, war office minister of the time, Edward Cardwell, officers bought their commissions. They bought their position at, at this time. So you would pay 400 pounds to become a captain, for example, and you would equip yourself as an officer with your uniform, with, the, with your pistol, with everything else that you would take. So that the nature of the army, huge class division was a very, very different thing. Number four, going through my six things, <laughs> um, something about the age of most of the Imperial soldiers serving in these infantry regiments. The work we've done on um, our group of soldiers, so those who serve in New Zealand in the 1860s, so the 12,000 or so that sit in that period, um, are usually enlist into the army somewhere in the age between 12 and 16 and serve between 12 and 21 years. So most of them are either, um, if they've 
survived, which most of them do who serve in New Zealand, um, or haven't died from disease, they are discharged after a period of service in their mid to late 30s. So by the time they've reached the age of 35, 36, they have done 12 or 21 years service in the army. Um, and quite often their discharge certificate or the discharge document in the War Office 97 series will simply describe their health as worn out. So in, a, in essence, they're saying this man has given the vigor and the main uh, energy and uh, abilities and his physical capacities to the army and he really isn't capable of very much more. And if he gets that on his um, discharge certificate, he may well be entitled to a, a small pension. And small being the operative word, it was, you know, the matter of a, a few shillings a month, if that. So, but nonetheless, we get a picture of those individual people. Number five, the fifth thing I was going to mention was, if we're thinking about the British Army soldiers in New Zealand in the 1860s, we're also thinking about an army that is post the Crimean War, 1854 to 56 or so. So, the Crimean War was a sort of terrible conflict um, between uh, Russians and British and French in short, in which um, it's really become most well known in the Anglo world because of the work of Florence Nightingale, saying we send all these soldiers to fight in the Crimea, and in fact many more of them are dying from disease before they even get, get to the battlefield, and when they do get to the battlefield, they're being commanded by officers who are incompetent, who have no battle experience. So in New Zealand in the 1860s, we're coming just after that period when the response to Nightingale's exposure of the disease and the, the lack of sanitary conditions in which the soldiers are living um, is to make health conditions for soldiers one that the British Army or the War Office is very attentive to. And if you look in the National Archives in Kew, there are shelves after shelves after shelves of enormous great big returns sent back by military surgeons um, reporting on, is there fresh water available? Um, do the men wash their uniforms? You Usually they never do often enough for the Army surgeons. Um, uh, satisfaction. How many men are sleeping in a tent at any one time? 20 men in a bell tent is too many is often the phrase. Um, so the, the, it, the recording and attention to, to what we would see as public health uh, is interesting and it's there. Um, so the, the, the um, kind of concerns with the, the health of soldiers is something that is present by the 1860s uh, in the British infantry regiments. Um, even in the 18, late 1850s in Auckland, for instance, A.S. Thompson, who's the assistant military surgeon um, to the 58th Regiment, um, he's very interested in the um, health of his soldiers. And so he, he makes a number of um, statistical surveys um, about what, what is the health of the soldiers? Do they maintain their weight? Do they grow? Do they um, recover from influenza, etc.? And he um, concludes that the soldiers who serve in New Zealand, unlike those who go to the West Indies, unlike those who serve in India, unlike those who serve in most other parts of the world, 
actually maintain or get healthier by being soldiers in New Zealand than in any of these other places. So um, it's an unusual thing to go into the army and get healthier, but you do if you come to New Zealand in the 1850s and 60s. So that, 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 that notion of New Zealand being a healthy place for even um, people coming from the sort of labouring class of Ireland, Scotland, England, uh, is one that carries over and extrapolates into other groups who think about emigrating to New Zealand. The final number six of my six points is to note the big differences between the 18 regiments who sent soldiers to New Zealand. So just to take a couple of examples, the 65th Regiment, or the Hickety Picks as they're sometimes known, were in New Zealand for the longest period. So they arrived here first to fight in the Northern Wars that Vincent talked about. They briefly went back to New South Wales and then they were sent back to New Zealand and they're here continuously from 1847 until 1865-66. So they're here for an incredibly long time and some of the men in that regiment spend their whole lives as soldiers in New Zealand, in that one regiment in New Zealand, and that's unusual. So they become, if you like, the soldiers who are most familiar with New Zealand and who are most accustomed to what is going on in this place. Similarly, the, um, the 58th Regiment, who I mentioned before, with A.S. Thompson being the military surgeon, are in Auckland from the late 1840s until they leave in 1859, just before the main campaign in, in the 1860s. And many people in Auckland will connect to some of the men from the um, 58th Regiment who decided to discharge from the army and stay in New Zealand rather than go on with their regiment. And Wynyard, um, Robert Wynyard, who the, was the colonel in command of that um, regiment, of course, is only the most prominent one. But if we compare those regiments who spent a long time in New Zealand with those who spent a much shorter time. So if you take the 68th Regiment, the 43rd, for instance, who arrive in New Zealand and are here only for 18 months or two years in 1863-64 at the height of the Waikato campaigns. So they arrive, they're immediately in those large campaigns and then they're gone within a very short time period. So they will have a very different kind of experience of New Zealand and connection with here uh, than the 65th or the, the 58th. So, so we're flagging kind of differences between, this, um, between soldiers in this larger group. To illustrate um, a couple of things, uh, of those things I've been talking about um, in, in slightly more detail, um, so the 70th Regiment, just to, to follow the differences between regiments and also wh where they came from and what they do while they're in New Zealand. So the 70th Regiment are serving um, in Bengal uh, in the late 1850s. When what we come to know as the first Taranaki War um, starts in 1860 and proceeds and escalates through that year, the 70th Regiment are instructed to prepare themselves to travel to New Zealand. And they leave Calcutta in the very, um, very end of 1860, very uh, beginning of 1861, arriving in Auckland in three ships in May of 1861. 
But by the time they get here, the war in Taranaki has reached that kind of ceasefire. So they've arrived at a place where they thought they were going to be fighting, and now they're just here along with others. So they go from the problems of hot climate temperatures to uh, being in the camp in, the, in a New Zealand winter, uh, and Onehunga and Otahuhu and the military surgeons are all saying, the men are all suffering from rheumatic and respiratory diseases, whereas we, they were all suffering from um, cholera and other things when we were in India. So there's the 70th have come from India directly into Auckland to a New Zealand winter in 1861. In November of that same year, Major Richardson, who's the superintendent of Otago, is worried about mayhem on the goldfields in Otago, which people have been roaring in from Australia into the newly found goldfields uh, in central Otago. So he says to the, the, the governor, you know, you've got those soldiers of the 70th Regiment, send some to me so I can keep order uh, in Dunedin. Uh, and he's worried about the disorder that he knows um, occurred uh, in the Victorian goldfields, and particularly the Eureka uprising, in which there was kind of a revolution against authority. Um, and so there's a group of about 100 soldiers that are sent to Dunedin and serve there for about two years. So the story about, um, you know, is this just a North Island story? Um, no, you know, there are some of these Imperial soldiers who spend time in Dunedin. And Peter Trevathan has recently been doing work on excavating archaeologically the sites where they were. Um, and you'll see on our website uh, a great piece of work that one of our students, Maggie Blackburn, has done plotting those hundred soldiers. Um, some of them deserted because why would be why do you want to be a soldier when you could go to a goldfield and earn a whole lot more and be out of obedience? Um, and um, what happens to deserters discharged? and um, some of those who died of disease as well. And you can plot exactly where those men are. So that's on our website. Um, another little detail that I think is quite important for um, people following the story to also be aware of is the impact and influence of India in New Zealand. So it's really huge in this period. Um, I've mentioned Major Richardson, the superintendent of Otago. Uh, he himself was a retired Indian officer who comes to New Zealand to become a pastoralist. John Craycroft Wilson um, in Christchurch, the founder of Kashmir Hills, was a judge uh, in the north of India. Um, the whole impact and the sensation fear that the 1857 Indian mutiny or rebellion as it's known um, prompted amongst settler communities in New Zealand and Australia has a lot to do with the shape and response to why we get to the catastrophic and tragic um, fighting in the 1860s when we had begun in the 1840s by talking and treaty making less than 20 years later settlers in Māori are picking up guns uh, and, and going to violence. Why is that? And I think we need to look outside New Zealand to find part of the story and explanation for that. Um, thank you very much for listening. Happy to answer questions. So firstly, um, Craig said, he'd said about there was no fighting against Māori when the first guards came out. Could you be a bit more specific? I'm wondering if he misheard because I thought there was, yeah. So, um, so the first soldiers came in the 1840s, partly as a, as a, 
the governor's retinue, tiny in number, um, but the large numbers begin arriving for the northern wars that Vincent talks about in 1845, 44, 45, 46, and then in the outbreaks of violence that happen in Nelson, Wanganui, um, Wellington. And the soldiers then stay. So that's the curious thing. If they're just here to fight, why don't they all leave after those violent events in the 1840s? But in fact, they're continuously here until 1870. Uh, Farrell said, Charlotte, did the Fencibles take any active part in the wars? No. In fact, the Fencibles never actually went out on any military duty, ever, in their whole time here. I mean, they were, it, it was intended that they be military settlers, but really to occupy those villages uh, and to, to, to be called out if necessary, but, but they never actually did. And Glenn's asked, did many discharged soldiers join the provincial police forces? Um, that's, a, that's a really interesting question. So we estimate that about one in five of the imperial soldiers who served in New Zealand discharged from the army in New Zealand. Um, and of those discharged soldiers, yes, some of them did end up in armed constabulary, provincial police forces, um, Several of them we've tracked ended up being prison jailers. Um, so those kinds of what we might say um, before there's actually a police force, kinds of um, military style uh, security elements, absolutely that was quite a common occupation. And Avis has said, are there any records of the families apart from the birth records in India of the soldiers who came from India in the 18th century? 16. Um, so the, the, those records would be in the W, well, you'd find traces of them in the WO12 quarterly muster rolls in which the presence of women and children is often recorded, not necessarily the birth per se, like a birth register, but in the sense of the, um, pay deductions that would come be taken from a soldier's pretty meager pay and with the that example of the 70th regiment and there are a couple of others that also come from india to new zealand um, we know with those three ships it lists very clearly the numbers of soldiers um, wives and children on for that 70th regiment thank you very much charlotte that was really great You've been listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. You can find further information on our page at SoundCloud or see the Auckland Libraries website.